This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. As soon as I started identifying wild plants, things just started popping out at me, and my brain was suddenly doing something that it had never done to that extent before. Like this deep pattern recognition we have built into us started working, and I suddenly realized, like, oh, I can spot a chanterelle mushroom from a moving car without trying. I'm Lindsay Christians. And I'm Chris Lay. This is The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. We are recording remotely for now. Parks, beaches, hiking trails. This summer practically demands that we get outdoors as often as possible in order to maintain our sanity. Just so long, of course, uh, that you've got your mask on and you're staying away from other people. I met Andy Grisevich a couple years ago when he took me on a foraging trip to Elver Park. I'm a lifelong four-leaf clover hunter, so Andy's ability to see specific edible things within the wall of green was fascinating to me. Andy joined us this week to talk about mushrooms that won't kill you, a unique dish that he calls lawn zanya, and what he's most excited about finding to eat in the parkways and backyards around his new house. Pull out your summer fan and give a listen. Andy, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thanks so much, Lindsay. It's great to be here. (laughs) So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, I'm Andy Grisevich, and uh, I have a little and slightly growing business called What Got Gathered. Um, And What Got Gathered started off doing two things, which is uh, to make uh, fermented hot sauces with wild ingredients uh, as most of the seasonings. And then also to do wild food walks with groups of people who want to learn about what's edible um, in their landscapes. And uh, that really got going a year ago. And over the course of the year, um, really gained some momentum. And we had a stand at the Monroe Street Farmer's Market um, and did really well there every week, uh, which was crazy to me. I had no expectations, meaning I expected a lot or a little bit or nothing to happen. And uh, more people wanted to do walks than I had time for by the end of the year. So, yeah, this year, um, because of COVID, the group walks haven't really been happening. But I've been doing a lot of private walks with one to three people and getting a lot of requests for that. And I think because people have wanted to be outside so much um, and are curious about learning new things, you know, um, especially during the safer at home period, uh, there's a lot of interest in it right now. And uh, also expanding um, product range, making a lot of different stuff. I'd already added lots of vegetable ferments and wild fruit jams and medicinal mushroom tinctures and all kinds of stuff to the table last year. And there's a lot that's going to roll out this season. I'm just getting going uh, this month on making product for the season. And we've also done some uh, some big dinners, uh, wild food centered, centered dinners, my partner, Nora and I. Um, in a few different places. So ticketed events where we'll have five to, if we're very foolish, 10 courses and serve about 60 people um, with dishes we've mostly come up with or occasionally stolen and modified from other people's ideas. Uh, 
so yeah, that's that's basically the range, um, which kind of weaves into everything else I've been doing. And I'm the dad of a nearly two-year-old, so that also means that foraging is one of the only things I've been able to do for the last couple <laughs> of years. Uh, so I get a lot of that done. And uh, oh, and this year also um, did a wild greens CSA. Um, we were harvesting so many greens starting in April. So I wanted to share those plants with people who wanted them. And I realized I knew enough patches of plants that were so abundant as to be called weedy that I could sustainably harvest like large amounts of them and then just drive them around to people around town who were interested um, and and do that on my own time as much or as little as I wanted. And that also went really, really well. Uh, so, yeah, I felt like that was contributing something. What have you been bringing home lately and what have you been doing with it? Well, uh, two nights ago, we made what we called lasagna, um, which was basically <laughs> white sauce lasagna with a bunch of golden oyster mushrooms from about two blocks away, uh, which are a very abundant wild mushroom right now. And then probably about eight species of greens that are growing in our yard or in the little island down our very low traffic street um, at our new house. We had some common stuff. We had dandelion in there and wild spinach, which is also known as lamb's quarters, a common garden weed. We had this herb called honewort, which is in the carrot family, which is delicious and is growing all around the edges of our yard. Hmm. And I just realized uh, that we have a plant called gout weed that's also in the carrot family and is just astonishingly good. And that's growing all over the yard. And wood violet leaves. So we just had a, a big, big mess of about two gallons of greens that we cooked down with some wild garlic from uh, the prairie at our old place and some nettle and ramp pesto from last year. So that was delicious and really nourishing. Like, you know, you eat lasagna normally and you just feel heavy and very satisfied. And we felt very satisfied and extremely enlivened uh, by the lasagna. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my partner's uh, family around the corner ate it with us and agreed that it was delicious. The, the, the ingredients that you mentioned, um, some of them you mentioned were ones that you found in the wild, but the ones that are growing in your yard, are those ones that you have kind of made a point to cultivate specifically, or are those as well just kind of wild things that you've allowed to, you know, take over their little corners? They are, uh, they're plants that grow in forests as well. And we've only been living in the house we're living in for about a week now. So we haven't had time to cultivate much at the new house that we already are digging up our lawn in front and putting in wild plants. And we're ready to seed the whole thing with edible forest understory um, in the fall. Yeah, so these are plants, a lot of these plants, depending on your neighborhood, are potentially in your backyard. Um, they're around the edges of our yard and uh, I've just not mowed there, just let those grow. And some of them are like uh, plantain, which is a very, very common plant in lawns, sidewalk cracks, anywhere you look, and isn't the best eating green, but is good mixed with other stuff. Uh, that actually lays low and the mower doesn't touch it. Plantain incidentally is a very useful plant if you learn it. You get a bee sting and chew a leaf of that up and stick it on the bee sting and uh, pain goes away like that, like immediately. Huh. It's got an aspirin-like compound in it and it's extremely healthy, like all these greens. Um, so yeah, these are all, I mean, almost all this stuff is is really common. Gout weed is apparently something you can't get rid of if, once it's there, but I don't want to get rid of it. It's delicious. I just want to eat this forever. So I'll just let, we'll, 
we'll do something like cultivation with it. There's a great foraging educator, Samuel Thayer, um, up in Bruce, Wisconsin, whose books are life-changing and classes are incredible. And he's coined the term eco-culture. Um, so not exactly permaculture, you know, uh, like a regenerative agriculture, but something more like what indigenous people you know, have done here for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is to just nudge landscapes. You know, um, you weed places in the forest where you want uh, this edible plant to have more room to grow, or you, you know, you take care of a piece of land so that the water flows better and doesn't cause erosion. And, you know, then that's also part of your garden. You know, so that's, that's an attitude I'm trying to cultivate uh, and explore, especially now that we're suddenly property owners um, by some miracle. (laughs) Yeah. I just looked up pictures of that plantain. Uh, I, I would have said it was a weed. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely have that in my yard, not because I planted it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's good in a smoothie. Yeah. I, I was wondering, how long have you been into foraging? Uh, well, I mean, I did it when I was a kid. I uh, hunted morel mushrooms and picked berries with my parents. And then... A few years after I moved back to the Midwest from Southern California, which was in 2006, I went morel hunting and I started getting really interested in a wider range of wild mushrooms and trying to learn all the wild mushrooms I could. And I found some chanterelles for the first time and ate them. And I thought, this is astonishing. Like, I want to learn every edible mushroom and try it. And uh, I'm far from that uh, at the moment. And then a couple of years after that, I started reading Sam Thayer's books. I just picked one up at some point and decided I was going to try to find service berries. And there's a, a site which is not terribly well curated. Um, is it called Mad Urban Fruit or something? Uh, I think that's the one that has a map of Madison and shows sites where people have found particular, mostly fruit trees, but other edible stuff. Hmm. So I went on there and found out, oh, there's some service berry in this spot near campus. And I walked around and was like, you know, taught myself to identify that plant with 100% confidence and uh, started eating these incredibly delicious berries, which taste kind of like blueberries with an almond hint to them. Hmm. Really, really wonderful fruit. And, uh, you know, that was both a gateway into the fascination of uh, learning to be in nature in a more detailed way than I had before. You know, I've always liked going out in the woods, but it was more like a, a childlike epic imagination of adventure and large landscape. And as soon as I started identifying wild plants, things just started popping out at me. And my brain was suddenly doing something that it had never done to that extent before. Like this deep pattern recognition we have built into us started working. And I suddenly realized like, oh, I can spot a chanterelle mushroom from a moving car without trying, you know, in the, a patch of woods. This really happens. It's, it's very strange. Like <laughs> once I know the plant, it just stands out and or the mushroom or whatever. So having that experience also at a really high stress time in my life where I, you know, really needed my brain to do something else and to do something that was slow and, um, you know, soothing and to be out, you know, under the summer sky, you know, harvesting food uh, just totally blew me away. And I and the obsession has just increased from there. And I would say the last two years, the the learning curve has been like exponential. The speed has been exponential. I feel like every time I go for a walk, I learn a new plant uh, at this point. Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like the it's it's very easy for you because you've been doing it for so long. Like you say, you can just spot things just driving past them. What are some things that are are difficult? When you talk about like a learning curve, what are the things that you're still like working towards? Like where, where's the growth 
for you? Um, the growth. Pun <laughs> <laughs> retroactively. Um, well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm an amateur self-taught botanist, and uh, and that means I'm still a pretty lousy botanist. And there's becoming a better botanist. There's becoming a better mycologist. You know, mushrooms are you know are definitely harder to learn in many ways. I would say maybe a good mycologist would disagree with me. Um, and then there are just plants that are harder than others to, to identify. And there are just millions and millions of edible species of plants and, and uh, fungi that I don't know. I guess the, it's not so much a difficulty. It's just the challenge of there being, and it's a wonderful challenge, uh, the challenge of there being an infinite amount to learn for the rest of my life. And then I would say the other challenges are uh, I want to take care of every space that I gather from. And I see like, you know, an organization sprays the garlic mustard with Roundup. And it makes me want to say like, I want to come back to this beautiful place early next year. They, everybody sprays too late, by the way. If you see garlic mustard sprayed, it's almost always after it's gone to seed already. And that's actually <laughs> doing more harm than good. Mm. I don't really understand why I don't want to complain too much about conservation organizations and parks, but there's a really weird timing that goes on with this stuff. Um, I see it all the time for the last few years. So I just want to get it, my whole neighborhood together and teach them what's in their backyard that they can eat. And we'll all pull all the garlic mustard in every space around us. And, you know, it's a huge job. You can't keep up with this stuff, these, the invasive plants. Yeah. And that's also an incredibly nutritious plant that's pretty good early in the season. So, I mean, the biggest challenge for me is just kind of the cultural work in that way. Yeah. I feel like they're an important role for this in culture. And it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Would you say that Madison is like, do we have a, a uniquely like larger variety of, of forageable plants like i mean is, is madison just like especially full overflowing with um you know these magical little things that you can find on the one hand i would say that there's uh fairly abundant wild food almost everywhere mm -hmm. on the other hand i would say that this is uh an incredibly fertile and diverse place and area um, especially the Isthmus and kind of, especially the spot that I'm in right now. Uh, we just moved to the Monroe street neighborhood and there's a small chunk of the Arboretum right on Monroe, uh, toward the end that was important enough to indigenous people that I have a friend who, who heard about it through stories in his tribe in Eastern Oklahoma. Mm. There's just this one little spot with a spring and a pond and a lot of birds and, uh, a little bit of marsh and, just walking around that spot this morning, I was like, this is, this is a crazy food forest that I'm not allowed to harvest from. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, because we're in this area of, you know, of the big lakes and the smaller lakes and all of that, all the floodplain and the little rivers and, uh, you know, floodplain is an incredibly abundant site for wild foods of all kinds. And yes, and that abundance has made this an important place for people to settle since, you know, well before Europeans. And that's one of the reasons for sure that there's just so much food here. Yeah. And then if the lakes weren't so dirty, you know, so many fish and, you know, uh, so much wild rice that you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned the, the one place where, you know, you don't, you don't want to forage. Is there any fear of, of things being over foraged? Not necessarily in these, you know, in, in these specific ma magical little places, but I mean, just in general, or, I mean, the, for you to be educating people to go out and, and find this stuff, is there a worry that eventually you could hit 
some level of uh, saturation where too many people, <laughs> I guess it's kind of a good and bad thing, maybe. Sure. Yeah, it's it's a concern. Um, I would say, well, I'll just say what I say when I do walks with people and kind of give introductory talks, which is sustainable harvesting means, you know, starting off knowing what you don't know. Um, so when I started, I, I took the rule of thumb that's pretty frequent that, you know, if you have a patch of something and it looks like nobody else is harvesting it, take a third to a half at most and try to err on the side of a quarter, you know, yeah. and don't take more than what you need. And then as you learn more plants, you learn what plants can take more and less harvesting. There are certain plants that need to be harvested, like there are spring ephemeral bulbs that if you don't harvest them, they crowd each other out and the bulbs don't divide. And those plants are endangered partly because people and, for example, bears no longer dig them up and eat them. And, you know, they need a light disturbance in order to thrive. But, you know, that took me years to learn, um, you know, that that whole concept I learned from Sam Thayer again and have been reading up on it since. So I think, though, there isn't enough wild food for everybody to live on wild food and there probably isn't <laughs> enough wild food in Madison to create an army of really enthusiastic foragers and who are eating a ton. But there's enough here for everybody to have some. And I would say, I mean, how can I measure that really? But, uh, but if we actually, while learning to forage, if we're also learning to become good stewards of the places we're foraging from, we can make those places healthier than they were before we got there and gathered food from them. And I think we can make them healthier than we do by just staying on the trail and trying to not touch anything. We do disturb the wild, no matter what we do. So we need to make the disturbance beneficial. Um, and, uh, okay, sorry, lost a thought. <laughs> the thought was about the other question of commercial harvesting. And this is something that I try to be really tentative about. Like when I started What Got Gathered, uh, I was like, I'm going to be selling people wild foods and wild ingredients. How do I feel about that? And I had to think like, okay, I have to be really hardcore about the way that I harvest and about what I do and don't harvest. I won't sell people uh, ramps, for example. And that's because they are over harvested for sale to restaurants already. And there are places where colonies of them are being wiped out. And there are sustainable ways to harvest a lot of ramps. We get a supply for the whole year, every year without any problem. Um, but uh, I don't want to make that plant more of a commodity than it is, given that I don't have private land that these plants are growing on myself. On the other hand, I can harvest as much stinging nettle as I want to and uh, sell that to people if I want to. And I can, you know, share that plant that has just had a study done on, you know, effects of coronavirus in mice who given uh, lectin found in nettles that uh, is very promising, you know. Again, not conclusive, but I feel like that's a contribution and doesn't hurt the communities of these plants or the places that I'm gathering from. So that's a long answer to that question. Um, and yeah, the, the answer is it can be made beneficial and positive rather than damaging, but it can hurt spaces and it can hurt populations if it's done wrong. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. I feel like some of what you're talking about is a reframing. So where I would look in my backyard and see garlic mustard 
and curse audibly sometimes about its invasiveness and the fact that it's this weed that we have to pull out every year and we can't even put in our compost, right? Because you don't want that coming back. And you know, you, you don't even want to burn it. You're supposed to put it in trash bags and it goes to the landfill. Gar- garlic mustard is that bad, right? But it's edible, as you mentioned, and it doesn't actually taste bad. I've had other people prepare it and I haven't prepared it myself. But I, I think it's really interesting to talk about not only this way of reframing what we think of as being invasive or a pest, but also learning to see. And I think of that in the context of, say, four-leaf clover hunting. I love finding four-leaf clovers. And it's because I have good pattern recognition for those leaves. And I, <laughs> and I can see them just walking by and I'm like, oh, four-leaf clover. And people are amazed, but it's just pattern recognition. And you just start to get a little bit more used to it and you can find the chanterelle or the edible mushroom that's so wonderful. So I was wondering if there are specific things that were exciting when you learned to see them or when you learned how to reframe that narrative that maybe you had in your head about them, about them being invasive or like a stinging nettle can hurt if you (laughs) touch it wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there specific things where your thinking or your ability to see or you remember that moment when it changed or it shifted for you? Yeah, I could say this spring, and this is a resonance with last spring. I feel like last spring I started to learn a bunch of small green plants that basically looked alike to me. And and this year I got to see them come up right at the beginning of their growing season when they're the most delicious, the most nourishing, the most tender I mean, it's gourmet food. This year, these are gourmet vegetables, and so th- this year that that greens learning just exploded. And again, these are these common things that are growing around the backyard. They're growing in prairie easement strips. They're everywhere. And for the months of April and May, and pretty much up to now, we've eaten almost not a single cultivated vegetable. We've eaten so many green plants. And a thing a thing about wild plants to know is that the ones that have had nutritional analysis done on them they are off the charts. Like they're so much healthier than anything you can get, even in the best produce department <laughs> in the best co-op, which I you know, used to work at basically. Uh, yeah, they just blow everything else out of the water. And it's because they know how to get nutrition, even from poor soil. And they have uh, phytochemistry. They have chemical compounds that for them are, for example, insect repellent, but for us are incredible nutrients. So it, it blew my mind uh just in terms of of the role of nutrition, especially at a time when everybody has been so concerned about their immune systems being strong. And, you know, I felt like I was able to gather for my friends and family and then for other people doing this CSA, uh, some really serious food medicine. And so, yeah, so that's through all these all these little green plants just starting to pop out at me and getting really confident about maybe another 15 species plus a bunch that I'd known before. Uh, And then another one that uh, we're just coming to the end of shoot season. So early spring is uh, leafy green season, really. And um, leafy green season is kind of on on the wane now. And we've just come through shoot season. Uh, One of my very favorite wild vegetables is poke, also called pokeweed, considered an invasive by a lot of people. It's not, if by invasive, you mean something like what garlic mustard does, which is to actually prevent the growth of other plants. Um, But poke is a toxic plant. um, And uh, if you eat the young shoots prepared correctly by, say, boiling twice for three minutes and five minutes, 
Or if you talk to somebody from the Ozarks, just boil it once for a few minutes. They've been eating them their whole life. You know, they're 80 years old. Um, it is the most delicious, delectable vegetable I've ever eaten, or at least it's, there's a contest for it, but uh, it's, it seems to produce its own butter. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, so you, down south, they make poke salad, they call it. And you take poke and boil it and cook it typically with bacon, onion, a little bit of cider vinegar, a little bit of maple syrup, and that's your dish. And they used to sell it canned all over the country. Uh, the poke industry doesn't exist like that anymore, but people down there still eat it, especially older folks. Uh, Facebook put them out of business. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But yeah, finding out that there's this kind of sinister plant that, you know, kids have been sent to the hospital because they ate the berries, you know, when it's fully grown later in the year and, you know, people want to get rid of it. I'm like, no, this is amazing food and it's got so much vitamin A. It's so healthy and it's uh, I've never eaten anything that tastes like this. So, yeah, discovering poke really over the last couple of years was another kind of mind blowing experience. Like, oh, here's the stuff that people had to do a lot of trial and error to learn to prepare so that it didn't hurt them. And then they found out that it was amazing food. That's always fascinating to me. There are mushrooms that are like that too that I yeah. haven't tried yet, where you know, if you don't cook it right, it's a serious toxin. But if you cook it right, no problem and apparently really, really good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know um with the 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 foraging walks that you organize, people actually have to sign a waiver. Um and is there is there any any aspect of that dangerousness, which obviously it's it's manageable given the you know tremendous amount of you know, research and, and, you know, years that you, that you've spent working with this, uh, with, with these, with these vegetables, but is there, is there a certain aspect of that that is like you get a thrill from it or is it just kind of, eh? <laughs> um, I don't, the, the thrill is the thrill of discovery. I actually don't think that foraging is dangerous at all. There's a guy, a foraging educator named Sergei Butenko, and he has, uh, he has a song, that you can find online called don't eat something if you don't know what it is. And that's basically it. Or, yeah. or as Sam Thayer says, when he starts his classes, he holds up a banana and says, what is it? And you say a banana. And he says, how do you know? And you're like, I just know that's a banana. He's like, are you hundred percent sure? And you're like, yeah. And he's like, okay, that's your attitude towards every plant you forage, you know, just don't do it. So the only real danger is eating accidentally sprayed areas, you know, so I forage from places I know haven't been sprayed. I keep track of, you know, that in the places that I walk. If it's been sprayed, I don't gather from there for five years, you know, maybe. People will say two, but I want to play it really safe. And I try to look at what's nearby and the, are there busy roads nearby. So it's just, it's the toxicity of human, you know, disturbance that yeah. is a concern more than anything else. And yeah, I mean, I've put something that I wasn't 100% sure of in my mouth maybe twice. And once it was a mistake and, uh, and it was obvious that it was a mistake from the moment I put it in my mouth <laughs> and, and once was, uh, was yesterday. And I was completely confident about what I was eating, at least that it wouldn't hurt me. I knew what plant family it was in. I knew the poisonous plants in that plant family. And that's actually part of the learning curve too, is I want to be really solid about knowing all the serious toxic plants and mushrooms. And once I know that, I can maybe personally mess around a little bit more, you know, because I know this won't kill me. Yeah. I am uh, getting ready to do an interview with Mark Bittman, who wrote mm. a book uh, with a, a doctor, actually, a, just called How to Eat. And it's like Q&A format. And it strikes me that there are a lot of things that we eat that we don't know what they are. Like Claire in the test kitchen for Bon Appetit starts taking apart a Choco Taco and she starts listing off those ingredients. 
do I really know what carrageenan is? Would I eat a choco taco? Yeah, probably. But I don't know what all those ingredients are. So I think that we actually eat things that aren't food or that we don't know what they are all the time. Sure. Which is so interesting to me because foraging does have this aura of, you know, don't eat the mushroom. It might kill you. Well, sure. But think about how much more you're thinking about that in that scenario than you are about what's in a Chaco Taco. That's a great point. Absolutely. I had never thought about it that way. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, for sure. Um, and I do, it is a thing that I love about foraging is I'm not a survivalist. I'm not really much of a prepper. You know, um, it feels good to have a useful skill that would come in handy under certain situations. But I do like the the aspect of control of our own food systems and, you know, control of our own food. And, you know, we know exactly where this came from and we know exactly what we're putting into our body if we know anything about the plant. But uh, yeah, that's totally right. There's an empowerment to it. And yeah, of course, I would eat the Choco Taco too. <laughs> um, <laughs> I get a chicken sandwich and fries now and then, you know, uh, yeah. no, no purist here. But yeah. I feel like the foraging that I have done, maybe that most people have done is like blackberries and raspberries, you know, on the side of the bike trail or at the ballpark or, you know, something where it's, it's fairly obvious that these are chives. And like, I can see that they're chives and the chives have come up and I know what they, what the flowers look like. If you are someone who wants to start foraging, maybe a little beyond that, are there some tips and advice that you give to people? Like when you're going on your walks, like here's a place where you can start and also, are there communities in Madison that you try to connect people with so that as they're getting more into this as a hobby or a way of eating, they have a place to go? Well, I, I guess to the first question, there are some little tips. Like, I mean, I think I think blackberries, uh, you know, black caps are a great place to start. They're obvious. And yeah, so you can give really simple rules of thumb, like anything that looks like a blackberry or a raspberry is an edible berry. And you can give tips like if it has a square stem and it smells like mint or like a culinary herb, it's edible. It's a mint family plant. Not all square stem plants are in the mint family, but anyone that does, you know, you can mess with. And there's a really wide range of flavors of wild mints. You know, there's a, I, I use a lot of bee balm, which is everywhere and tastes like oregano, but 40 times as good. That, by the way, is my description of almost every <laughs> wild food. It tastes like X, but 40 times as good. I'm telling you, it's gourmet stuff. Um, and then beyond that, you just need to get some really good field guides and ideally go for a foraging walk with somebody. You know, there are good teachers around. I'm, I'm just in the last couple of years, I feel knowledgeable enough to feel like I can offer that. And now I feel confident that I can easily fill three hours or eight hours if I had to just taking people around um, and showing them things that they could eat. But uh, there are a lot of wild food educators in the state uh, who offer courses who are really smart and really good. I don't know of a solid community in Madison, but there are Madisonians who are on a few fantastic Facebook groups. Uh, wild Food Wisconsin is really, really great. Midwest Wild Edible and Forager Society is fantastic. Those are basically the reason I'm on Facebook. There are you know, people of all levels of experience there, tons of first-time foragers, and then tons of people who have been at it for decades. Um, and you, know, you can send a picture of a plant, and you'll definitely get you know, a bunch of well-informed opinions on what you have there. So that's what I would say. I mean, there's no, there's no substitute for one-on-one, -on -one, you know, mentorship, which I've had less opportunity to do than I would like to, and I'm hungry to do more of. 
but also, like I said, I keep mentioning Sam Thayer. His his three books are the most detailed, the most conscientious, the most fascinating, and increasingly funny and inspired and passionate that I've come across on the subject. But there are plenty of other good, really, really good foraging writers too. So you get your field guides, you know, you check more than one, check the web, you know, don't trust your apps, your identification apps, except to just get you started. You know, don't eat something because your app says it's an edible plant. Um there have been actually a lot of poisonings since people started using these plant ID apps. Oh, interesting. I use it because I can't carry 15 field guides around with me all the time. But then I go look it up. <laughs> Is it really that? Um, so those are useful apps. Yeah. And then then you check your field guides or you check your Facebook groups. And then there are there are probably more and more kind of nature connection communities um, getting going in town. I, I work for a group called Wild Harvest Nature Connection, where I do mentoring of kids mostly ages seven to 11, outside for uh, six hours a group once a week. Uh, And we do a lot of wild plant harvesting and cultivation and caretaking of land, as well as climbing trees and playing nature immersion games and uh, sitting quietly and waiting to see if animals come up to us and, uh, and goofing off in all kinds of ways and getting muddy. And then that, you know, the foraging aspect that's built into that, which most of the kids are interested in, not all of them, and kids love to eat vegetables they picked themselves out in the wild, in the you know, from the ground. They might not eat a vegetable you put, you know, cooked on their dinner plate, but it's much more fun if you get it yourself. Uh, and then that spreads to their parents if their parents aren't already curious about it. So I'll end up talking to the parents a lot about, oh, you know, my my kid brought back this wild plant to to have me taste the other day, and it was great. What is that? Tell me more about it. And so there there are ways for this kind of community to to flower. Yeah. So though I don't know specifically of one that exists, one of the purposes of what got gathered is to help create that community yeah. and to meet up with people who are trying to create it. Uh, oh yeah. There's um, there's a wild food, the Madison wild food collective on the East side. Uh, I've only had a chance to walk with them once uh, they were doing potlucks um, once a month and uh, they're not doing the potlucks right now, but they are getting together and walking. I think it's the last Saturday of the month or something. So the one walk I had with them was fantastic. A uh, bunch of really great people. So there's an example. Yeah. Well, Andy, if, if people want to find you at What Got Gathered, where are the easiest ways for them to do that? Uh, whatgotgathered.com is my uh, not often and updated enough website. Uh, what got gathered is also on Facebook and I tend to post things more often there when things get, get rolling. Uh, we'll also be at the Monroe street farmer's market starting, uh, the last Saturday of the month. And that'll be an interesting experience, uh, as it is for everyone doing farmer's market, uh, this year. Oh, and then we have a collaboration with let it ride cold brew coming out, um, which is a wild iced tea that we were serving for people for free at our market stand last year. And uh, Ace from Let It Ride proposed that we collaborate on bottling that wild iced tea. And that'll be available uh, also through the online market called the Wisconsin Creators Collective that uh, was started spearheaded by by Ace and Lacey Rude, who does Rude Brew Kombucha. Really great kombucha. Very, very good. So they're doing an online market uh, deliveries a few times a week, and we're about to hop on board with that. So that's another place to find product. And then I'm always happy to do private walks, and you know I can be reached through the website, through the Facebook, um, all those various ways. Someday I'll get an Instagram account going, um, but it's hard for me to keep up. <laughs> this seems like a very pandemic-friendly hobby. <laughs> Being outside, 
looking for stuff in the forest, not being around people. These are all very healthy activities for us these days. Yeah. It, foraging has never felt better than this year. I mean, I don't, not to make light of everything that's been difficult and challenging and horrible about this whole thing, but you know, it's felt like exactly the right thing to be doing. Yeah. So for anybody who's, who's, you know, kind of tired of, of making bread, we can transition into the next thing of, of foraging. That'll be. You guys, I'm currently making bread. I'm on my second rise <laughs> right I'm now. Making, I'm, I can't wait to make bread. I just got given a really strong sourdough starter and uh, it's, it's been a while since I baked, but I'm looking forward to getting into it. Uh, and, you know, as you said, we're coming into fruit season, too. So this is, you know, a great time to, you know, in about, you know, three weeks, the black caps are going to be popping. There's fruit all over all those bushes. And, you know, yeah, go pick out <laughs> you know, and learn a couple of new fruits. It's not that hard, actually. That's a good, a really nice time to start foraging if you want to get into it is the, the fruit season. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great talking with both of you. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. Our theme music was composed by Patrick Christians, and the show was edited by Natalie Yar. As always, you can subscribe to The Corner Table wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review if you like it. Follow the show on Facebook and check out captimes.com for food and drink news. We've got a recent feature about Crave Donuts out on University Avenue and my recent interview with Mark Pittman. Lindsay and I are both on Twitter and Instagram, so feel free to track us down there. We, of course, have more great stuff in the works. But while you're waiting on our next episode, please tell your friends how much you love listening to the two of us talk about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Chris Lay, carbon aficionado and overnight oatmeal maker. And I'm Cap Times food editor, Lindsay Christians, harvester of backyard strawberries. Our wish for you this week is a nice, big, refreshing bowl of ceviche. Cheers! This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.